future leader will actually be a heart therapist because you need to be able to be in that room with at best 10 team members and read all of their different emotional cues how they're doing how their day has been understand their future aspirations dreams hopes and fears and talk into those narratives in a meaningful way episode 37 and the watchword this week is anthropology so why anthropology well it's largely because i came across the work of mariana tarvenen which puts a modern spin on something that we automatically think of as ancient or traditional the world of work fascinates me the people the environment the dynamics we are going through the latest iteration of human evolution and doing so through the internet market trends capitalism and covid the dictionary defines anthropology as the study of human societies and cultures and their development mariana is an anthropologist who started her career in marketing she has forged a unique path combining the two disciplines leading her to her current role with Rainmaking Venture Studio. Rainmaking Venture Studio partner with corporations to build startups. Those startups are built specifically to meet evolving consumer demands. And it's a fascinating organization. And in Mariana's own words, she had no idea that the job she is doing now would exist two years ago. It was great to talk to Mariana and you can find her on LinkedIn. And please do follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn. And please do take a minute to give it a review on Apple Podcasts. Also look out for the new website, which is thewatchword.co.uk. And that's live from the 17th of November. I'm Mark Thompson. This is the Watchword Podcast. And this week's watchword is anthropology. So how would you summarise Rainmaking Venture Studios in London? What is it that you do? So basically, the Rainmaking Venture Studio in London is a completely new venture studio. Um, We have previously actually had venture studios um, elsewhere with Rainmaking, for instance, in Denmark. Mm. Um, And we, with these venture studios, build new venture startups for corporates. Think Fortune 500, sort of the IKEAs and UPS of the world. and with the new Rainmaking Studio model in UK, precisely, we're actually sort of going in with a new kind of model to do that. Previously, a lot of consultancies do sort of BCG digital ventures or um, pre-hypes. They've been building these ventures for corporates with a fee-based model, which means that um, they sort of do the research uh, based on specs on what kind of business model would be a good idea for a Fortune 500 and they get the right kind of talent on board um, and launch it through the market, grow it until it can successfully exit to the corporate. And we're sort of flipping to the, the table here and going, actually, you shouldn't be paying fees for this. We want you to invest with us. We want the true partnership where we are semi-equal and we both have skin in the game. We're actual entrepreneurs and we make an investment decision based on the research, the data that we have on on the, the venture. If it's actually a good idea, do we actually see the growth potential? 
and we allow for that exclusive possibility for our corporate partner to buy the venture three to five years in once we sort of scaled it, proved the business model is successful, but yet um, some 80% of the potential of the actual startup venture is still unrealized. And, and that's sort of, you know, the, the, the grand scope of what we do. And currently we are a team of six, seven individuals trying to make this, which is technically our little startup at Rainmaking, um, scale up and get more corporate partners in and build work-class ventures with the help of experienced, amazing founders. So the, the, the traditional model of venture building with a corporate partner is, is in itself, it, well, it was new to me. It's just not something that I really spent any time thinking about before. Um, and I mean, just, just to sort of recap, just to confirm my understanding. So it traditionally, a, a really large multinational co- company, if they're looking to innovate, then they would potentially hire a consultancy, pay them a, a, a fee. And for that fee, they would get a, a number of ideas, of business ideas that they can then either take forward themselves or the consultancy would continue with it? Is that how it would work? I mean, that's one possibility. Um, but obviously, you know, I think you're absolutely right in saying that the venture studio model or doing corporate ventures is very, very new. Um, whereas, you know, if you would ask for corporates on how they currently innovate, I think they would start to talk about R&D and yeah. acquisitions, which yeah. is still, you know, the standard way to go. If you... Um, if these corporates want to, you know, do something new, they might look at the startups and go, who could we collaborate with? Who is already at the market that we could gobble up? <laughs> um, and basically the, the new idea with the corporate venture studios has sort of emerged in the 2000s um, is more that why, you know, this is my interpretation, like why buy it when you could build it? Why wait so long for, for the market to sort of come up with the good business ideas when you could be the one creating it? So it's like we always say that every car company wish that they built Uber. <laughs> um, it's not like they want to just acquire it. They actually wish that they built it. And, and sort of coming back to the sort of traditional uh, corporate venture building model is, is maybe a little bit premature to say that it's traditional, but that is just normally how it's done because that is how innovation consul- consultancy works. It is, it is a fee-based consultancy model mm. where you pay for the people's hours to do the research, look into the startup world, find the opportunities and tap into them with new business models. And that's basically what the corporates would be paying for, that that research, that expertise, the understanding of startups and startup business models and and that sort of um, lean startup process. So it's like, it's more creative than, it enables people the greater freedom and ability to be more creative than the sort of traditional in-house R&D, department and that that therefore a slightly more traditional career but less risky than less risky than a pure startup that where you're taking you're taking a large amount of risk and you're taking the the leap from 
from employment perhaps to to no employment or, or no income and and therefore yeah. a greater degree of risk do you think it kind of bridges that gap I, I think there's like two two ways to look at it like if you look at it from the corporate side um the R&D and sort of the M&A and the venture building they do different things so R&D is basically to improve on the existing product M&A is to sort of gobble up new territory in the market whereas venture building is more like investing in the future on what your company could be in five to ten years mm. so it's sort of like solving a different problem now then the other part is if you look at it from the founder side and i said we we sort of actually hire these founders who've already been in the game maybe got burned maybe built something great and um, to come and build these startups for us and for these corporates and for them, this is a unique opportunity to actually coming and be paid. <laughs> it's a job to be a founder um, and get that almost guaranteed exit if they do their job as a founder well. And, and normally you would sort of come in as a founder and take a massive risk, but we're targeting sort of these founders to join the studio who are maybe in their sort of 30s or you know 40s who've done it and are now in a different situation in their lives where they want a little rest risk and want the certainty but still want to use their expertise as a founder um, to actually grow really cool um, really innovative new business models so this is where all the, the conversation at the moment is very business focused and very well almost corporate, I guess, to an extent, but that's not, that's really not what you're about at all in terms of your, your own background and, and the slant on this. And you sent me over some stuff to read in advance and most of which I hadn't seen before. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was a guy called David Graeber, um, yes. <laughs> which it just it really cool. Like I ended up reading a, quite a few articles about him um, and looking at his books online. So I guess we've touched on, We've touched on the the business aspect in terms of what what rainmaking does as a organisation, but how, how would someone like him? I mean, what was what was his outlook, his views, and and how has he influenced you? Yeah, well, <laughs> the the funny thing is that I'm an anthropologist, right? And that's that's where it starts. And and David Graeber is also a great anthropologist, mm. um, also known to influence the business world, but through the academia. Um, more or less, um, mostly famous for um, depth the first 5,000 years or um, the great theory of value or ballsy jobs, which has become almost a popular favorite. And I have to keep on reminding my friends that that is actually an anthropologist who wrote that. Um, and on paper, it's, it's true that business and anthropology are not exactly something that you would easily put together, especially this kind of business that I'm currently working in um, and using this kind of vocabulary on, you know, M&A, R&D, <laughs> business models mm -hmm. is not anthropological vocabulary. Um, but anthropology sort of has been my gateway into it nevertheless as sort of an approach to looking at business as something that is people-based um and likewise sort of why why we're talking about david Graeber and why i sent um his stuff to you is also because he's been such an inspiration in sort of opening up that world 
of understanding what does it mean that business is people-based? What, what is work? If you really like go into that jungle of what business is um, and who does the work, um, what, what does a job consist of? And what is wealth in, in relation to this context? These are all like anthropological questions um, that actually frame the, the world of business and, and sort of the legalities and norms through which we operate um, in our everyday lives. Yeah, and uh, to someone like me who doesn't know much about anthropology, even though I just that's how we connected, I decided that I wanted to do a, a podcast about it. But <laughs> because I, I just find the concept of it interesting because it what you're saying rings true in that we anthropology is traditionally it means a lot of things it means a huge variety of things from studying fossils and the evolution of humans and so on and uh and looking at history but if you look at that in the broader context where we are now is is x billion people largely running businesses and governments like that's just that's just how we've now uh, evolved evolved to live so that is that is what needs to be studied now in terms of our behavior, I guess it not exclusively, but in some, in some part. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's sort of, you know, um, if you look at the history of anthropology, you know, as it's dubbed as the, the study of the human being. Um, and as you say, you can start from the very early sort of studying the artifacts and, um, and fossils and apes. <laughs> We've actually became who we are as biological beings, social beings, and that's one form of anthropology. Um, but looking at the current day and what, what is it to be a person? What is it to be a, a human in the, in the life that we have today? It is dictated largely by things like business, um, by money, by work, by um technology all these different things so obviously we have to study those as well um and for me that has been sort of the the driver to to engage with the world of business not only academically but also by being in it um because i believe that there is so much sort of to extract <laughs> as an anthropologist by being in the business for the business, sort of seeing the people um, who create the business every day to actually understand what we're even doing every day better. How would you, what's your sort of assessment of the, the world of work, I guess, in the last, in the last few years? I don't, I don't know how many, maybe like a decade or two decades or more versus the juncture that we find ourselves at now what what do you think is maybe changing or is potentially going to influence things in the, in the future i mean the first thing that comes to mind is that everyone keeps on right now talking about the one thing which is the triple bottom line people profit planet um all of this talking about sustainability talking about healthy workplaces not only talking about the the revenues and quantifiable measures anymore and that is something that I find very, very interesting, um, partly because 
that change um, is sort of going at different paces depending on where you are in the world. Um, so say where I come from, I come from Finland, I've sort of seen this change happen way slower than when I moved to Denmark and I worked in Denmark, where definitely the the focal point was already in people and sustainability. And now moving to London, where we're sort of trying to merge all of these together. And, and almost every venture that I'm part of building, we always have to consider what does this do in terms of the planet <laughs> it, it is sort of like inherently a part of the talk and not just something that we're starting to consider but i but i guess some parts of the world are not even thinking that way yet it's not even on the radar maybe i don't i don't know what do you think exactly exactly and that's that's part of the the fascination for me because you know, I, we can only see, and I can only see business from where I'm standing. I can only see what I think is changing from, from what I see. And, and what does it actually mean to look at sustainability or people on that matter um, in the context of London or Copenhagen or Helsinki? Um, is that only like no, provocatively saying it's sort of like that problem like when we started first looking at fast fashion um the first instance was to start just looking at what you have in your wardrobe looking at sort of like the the closed circuit of your locality what you experience in your everyday life and at some point that sort of expanded expanded to um india to bangladesh to understand the people there, what their conditions are, what is their role in these supply chains and value chains. And, and in some ways, I'm curious to see how this sort of conversation that we are starting on sustainability also expands from the, the business world of London and Copenhagen and Helsinki to other parts and what it will look like when we go to go to somewhere else. We, we did a podcast recently with um, with someone who has started a business uh, that that supports or provides provides clothing care and sustainable clothing care products so you either getting clothes adjusted or mended primarily mm. um, to try and elongate the length of um, of clothes because to, to solve that problem that you're talk that you mentioned there with in terms of fast fashion um, and that's that's a kind of really interesting story in itself and a really interesting example. And you can again, you can just see the logic behind the way that it's the way that it's going and the fact that we, we, we have to go down this route. Um, and if uh, obviously because it because the future of the planet might depend on it. Um, but also it, it kind of has to make money as well, because the, the, the model of capitalism is unlikely to be to to be turned around like I'm, I'm not sure that it's that the appetite will be there across the world to ever really turn it around um so therefore maybe the solution has to be sustainable businesses absolutely and and then like my other sort of almost pet peeve in relation to that is if we're talking about the future is for sustainable businesses then what does sustainability mean um 
like how do we actually measure sustainability? Um, you know, there are all these studies on um, the new, especially like sustainable startups. I know the rainmaking has done a few, and actually surprisingly few startups and investors alike actually measure um, the sustainability metrics. So, so there's also this like whole greenwashing thing, <laughs> which is almost like, let's not even go there. Um, that is interesting in relation to this, that are we actually, actually engaging with the, the, the kind of solutions that we should be doing for the planet or are we just doing it for the sake of the narrative? The people aspect of, the, of that sort of trio, people, profit, planet so you, you think that there's been a shift in the way in the way that people relate to one another and what um i guess certainly the focus on mental health and well-being has changed in the last in the last i don't know how many years um but where where do you kind of see that in terms of the the trio of, of importance and how do you think that that import that um measure will will change I think in relation to the, the people aspect that we've already seen quite a lot of developments precisely as you mentioned on the on the mental health on sort of acknowledging that we do show up at work as whole people and not just the shells of ourselves that we like to uh, like to present at work or we feel like we need to um, we come in with our whole lives um, that are influenced by our kids and families and the random people on the metro who irritate us that that's just life right now um to sort of encounter people at work also as for people but the the sort of challenge that i see moving forward is really truly understand what that means for the workplace that the workplace is not just a place that's separate from each of our lives but if we truly come in as who we are and we acknowledge that people have um, diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds, um, mental health struggles, different life situations, that, that's a lot of um, pressure actually to put on the social structure and the leadership of a workplace to be able to um, address every single person adequately and, I, and and in some ways i think this is something that you can see in more and more people actually burning out more and more people actually being stressed because that pressure of mitigating the tension between you know you and who you are and how you're feeling at work versus the pressures of still being what you're expected to be or pleasing the structure, the social structure at work and the norms and conforming um, is, is really, really hard. Yeah. Especially if there's any kind of friction maybe in the workplace where if you've got uh, conflicting priorities with, with a peer, for example, um, to, to add on the, on top of, the the sort of day-to-day burden you, you know the the internal struggles that can sometimes develop in the in the workplace where people i, I just found it interesting uh, I, I have found it interesting myself in um in different workplaces the degree to which people are open and honest about the way they feel versus when they're not 
mm. and and the associated pressure that that builds sort of collectively and individually but a you're going to make less progress and b it puts more pressure on everyone involved exactly and and that sort of like leads me to to my sort of um sort of topic of interest which is sort of what i would anthropologically call the emotional labor um at work and i don't only mean the emotional labor involved in sort of disguising how you feel or managing if you're angry or sad but just the emotional labor that comes with also processing how other people are feeling um you know those days when you come in the office and you're you know boss just seems very pissed off and you really don't know why (laughs) and suddenly you just have to make like this whole like mental bodily gymnastics in yourself to be like it's not about me it's about something else maybe I should ask maybe I shouldn't ask (laughs) you have like a full internal dialogue going on trying to figure out what is the right thing to do and that's a lot of energy and that's a lot of time um, that you're actually putting into being able to work. And, and this is why I call it sort of emotional labor with the emphasis on the word labor. It is work. And, and that's sort of something that I see in relation to sort of the profit planet and the people, that the emphasis on people in, in terms of what does work consist of in the future? Is this kind of sitting with yourself and, and trying to figure out how to be in your workplace, how to manage all of these emotions, how to manage everyone else's emotions. Is that work in the future? Should that be work in the future? I mean, we're already doing yoga and mindfulness <laughs> as part of office um, office kind of routines, at least before COVID, and now you have it over Zoom as well. So is this sort of where we're also, also going? Actually, by caring people, this becomes a form of work. Do you do you think that it that it is part of work in the future, emotional labour? I absolutely believe so, um, and especially so for leadership and management, because um, this is something that I've talked a lot about with um, with friends of sort of the same generation. That it's it's a weird paradox that often in organisations we would be hiring people for leadership positions who have, you know, five, 10 years of experience in the field. They're really good at what they do. They might be an exquisite, you know, logistics expert or a project management um, expert, but the people skill is not actually there. And there's this like shift that needs to happen for us to sort of really start to understand what what is the skill set of a leader and that is where the emotional labor the almost like qualities of a counselor or a therapist come in (laughs) and it's almost a joke that we have um with um some of the fellow anthropologists and and my colleagues that the the future leader will actually be a half therapist because you need to be able to be in that room with at best 10 team members and read all of their different emotional cues, how they're doing, how their day has been, understand their future aspirations, dreams, hopes, and fears, and talk into those narratives in a meaningful way so that the work still supports the individual. Because right now, how the narrative still has been is that the individual needs to support 
him or herself um, in order to be able to work. Yeah, that's why well, it's very thought provoking. I almost just, just kind of wanted to just keep listening, but, it, <laughs> but you stopped talking, so I've got to say something. <laughs> um, so it, I, I, um, I do, I completely agree. I find it really, really interesting. And uh, I guess it makes, it makes you reflect on like what, what good leaders you've had in your in your career and what they did um to, to to create that like positive work environment and to get people moving in the in the same direction and that kind of thing so could you do you think you could be like specific in terms of the the skill set and the, the attributes and how they could be developed in in people to to achieve that better I think some of the things that like come to mind on top of head um, at the risk of all of this, obviously sounding very fluffy um, because soft skills often just come across as very fluffy <laughs> um, is the ability to talk about I, when you need to talk about yourself. So it's sort of like uh, in counseling practice, um, I'm also studying counseling at the side, so part is coming there. <laughs> um, we talk about sort of the I-based language and you-based language. And I found that very fascinating because some of my best leaders have been very good at that. So instead of saying, it makes me angry that, or that is not okay, sort of pointing outwards to actually talk from inwards. So how to sort of change the way that we talk so that it's, I feel frustrated when this is like this. I feel really exhausted of working with this. Because that's a more humane way of, of having a conversation. Mm. And, and then the other thing that sort of coming back to the managers that I've had before, um, because I've also had a varied bunch. <laughs> And one of the key skills that I've actually appreciated the best um, as an employee has always been the ability to take on feedback and implement it. Though it hasn't been easy. And I've had some managers where I've had to be like very, very frank and say, you can't use that kind of language in a meeting. It's non-inclusive. Um, it's, it's not something that we should have in this workplace. But the fact that I could have that conversation in the first place, well, it's, it's just amazing. In a lot of um, workplaces, you could not do that. Um, and on top of that, the manager's response, which is, thank you for pointing that out. I'm going to reflect on this and do better. That is exactly what you are looking for because you're not coming in to point at a behavior to make someone feel bad <laughs> because you like the ability to collectively together actually be building a better workplace for everyone involved that also involves having tough uncomfortable discussions and sitting with that uncomfortability i think again it makes it makes you think these kind of conversations always make you think back to different people that, and different organizations that you've that you've worked with and I spent seven years in the in the military where and people have a particular viewpoint about the style of 
of leadership or communication or management in the military, which is actually contrary to my experience for the most part. Um, yeah, for, for the vast majority of, um, of teams that you work in, generally they're actually more open, more honest, uh, more direct in their communication in, in, in a sort of constructive and non, non-emotional way uh, that actually leads to, leads to more effective teams. Not, not completely. There's obviously, there, um, it's not, not perfect by any stretch. Whereas I noticed in the civilian world, more often people don't want to give that feedback that you, that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like you say, it's great that you, that you could have, that you were in a position and you felt comfortable to, to say that um, because a lot of the time people don't. And so, so it, the, the status quo um, continues and then you kind of think, well, the, the person who then isn't getting the feedback, how are they, how are they developing then? They, even if it doesn't matter how much experience they, they have, if they're not getting the, the feedback on their own performance, then if something's not going quite right and people are, are scared to speak up, then how are they going to develop? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and maybe sort of, circling from this back to um also what we talked about sort of the the profit and planet and the people again i've had actually once a very funky conversation with one of my managers where i try to explain what is the difference between managing resources and managing people Mm. and for them this was a completely uncomprehendable division (laughs) and that there would be a difference and i think it says a lot um about the way that we are still accustomed to looking at people in organizations as resources that we just give them tasks um as if they were little machine parts very sort of scientific management uh, kind of style and they'll return with the output but that is not how social machines work that is not how a machine that constitutes of people work because those parts will have emotions and they will have days when they're not working as fast as the other days and some days they are missing a piece and some days <laughs> they just look very different um, and that's why there's a certain art I believe to managing people not as resources but as people. Without a doubt and I think just going back to that same kind of um, comparison between the military and the civilian world one of the reasons sort of having reflected on it now um, having left the military one of the reasons that I think people in the military can d- become so I worked with some outstanding leaders I think is because it's going through the training or, or the experiences that they that they have they there's so much variety in there in terms of the experience, different scenarios, different operating environments, different teams all of the time. So you move through lots and lots of different teams, countless, maybe different nationalities as well. If you're working overseas, um, you know, and there might be a language barrier, say working with Danish people, for example, or, or et cetera, although generally Danish people are extremely good at English, which is convenient. But, um, but I think that that sort of cumulative experience of being put into lots of different teams again and again and again, and in the process, getting things wrong more often, it it kind of it shaves off the edges of 
of people and so that they, they develop maybe develop more humility i'm talking about the, the kind of the, the best leaders that you see in the military which are maybe few and far between like they are in any organization um whereas if in the, if people are less i don't know diverse in terms of their background and they haven't been in so many different environments then sometimes you you're not as used to setbacks and and or failure and maybe don't get the feedback and aren't willing to accept it or something like that. But I don't know if you, if you would. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and something that obviously comes to mind of this is trust and how much of it is down to trust, because that's one of the basic human needs in order to be able to fail is to trust the people you're failing with. And that's why I've always found the sort of demand of the current working life to and especially the startup world to, you know, just fail, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, you know, we celebrate, you know, great failures that lead to great successes. Um, but we already talk about how much trust being able to fail actually takes from the people that you're failing with, or you feel like you're failing towards, be it your management or your family or your co-founder. Um, there, there's, there's so much trust that needs to be cultivated it, it doesn't just happen by snapping your fingers mm. and and that's something that um i i've also looked at in in our small startup team at the remedy mentor studio that it takes so much work especially now that we're all in sort of covid remote situations to find these little um spaces where we actually have meaningful conversations to cultivate that trust in each other and with each other so that in our next endeavor <laughs> kind of like you with the army when we build our next startup which could be anything in another industry we are actually willing to fail with each other because we know that it's going to be okay yeah and in the process be be kind of open and honest about it Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And sort of show that vulnerability um, of being insecure, being um, frustrated, and all, all that sort of messiness of human experience that comes with it. Mm. So you haven't always been as clear about what, about what you uh, what you wanted to do, have you? You've um, your journey's been an interesting one of lots of different countries and different different choices. Um, it's kind of evolved, but I guess the, the two themes that have, that have emerged as kind of anthropology and, and marketing, which as we kind of covered, there, there, there is a degree of correlation. So, but how did you, how did you come to settle on this, on this path? If you think you even have settled on a path yet? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to comment that I'm not entirely sure that I'm settled. Yeah. Um, maybe it comes as an occupational hazard when you are sort of in the world as an anthropologist you're always fascinated with new things right. um part of the reason why the current job really works for me because i get to change probably every six weeks <laughs> and dive into something completely foreign and new um but coming here has definitely been a journey um and and i think for me the crucial sort of message on that is that life is messy and for me it has been very messy um and it's not like i decided when i was 16 or or 19 or whatever that i'm just going to become an anthropologist no better yet i'm going to become a business anthropologist mm -hmm. i didn't even know that existed 
Um, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that this job that I have now could even be ever possible. I didn't know that this would be possible even two years ago. Um, and sort of my take on coming here has always been about sort of opening new doors. So if I sort of count back to the time when I didn't even know what I wanted to be, say age 16, I thought that I could become a mathematics teacher. That was my dream job <laughs> at the time. Um, and I studied physics and mathematics and uh, chemistry and all of that uh, natural science goodness um, for a few years until I was like, no, I don't actually want this anymore and decided to change to philosophy, psychology, geography and made my career counselor just go absolutely bonkers because I was doing so great in natural sciences. So why change now? <laughs> but for me, it's always been just driven by curiosity and even the choice of, of like pursuing um, anthropology as an academic career was never something that I was fully settled on. It sort of happened. Um, the entrance exam was such that I could just go in without reading a book and just write an essay. Um, and I did on dumpster diving and how I would study that <laughs> and miraculously got in to a small cohort of what, 15 people at the time. It was a small university in Finland, uh, uh, the University of Yvascula. And I just took it from there. And alongside, I jumped actually into marketing and business already when I was 16, um, just because I got the chance. And then I decided to never leave and just did some gigs along the side and uh, doing some part-time jobs here and there, updating CRMs. Uh, doing some Google Analytics reporting, um, sort of trying to just get my hands on the working life because I realized that I really enjoyed it even more than studying. <laughs> um, so I just kept on sort of doing the two tracks at the same time for a long time, which was actually very hard. Um, and I only realized it sort of um, later in my 20s, I think actually pretty much when I got this job and I realized like, man, I've been doing two completely different things exactly at the same time for years and suddenly I'm doing just one thing and I'm not entirely sure how, how I'm going to do this anymore because I'm so used to sort of splitting myself um, into multiple things at a time. Um, but at the same time though I wouldn't change anything off that journey um, which is such a cliche thing to say but if I hadn't you know, taken on um, anthropology, I would not be doing the job that I have now using those methods and tools that I've picked up along the way, talking about people and, and leadership uh, in this way. Um, or equally so, if I hadn't sort of jumped in the, the business world at such a young age, I wouldn't have learned my way around these tools like Google Analytics or got fascinated with content marketing and, and, and just kept on going so that I could understand business in order to be in this job now or wherever I'm going in the next five, 10 years. So there's, there's a lot of things that I've like jotted down whilst, um, whilst you're talking, but I mean, one, one of them being like the, the, the reason that it's great to talk to you and to hear, to hear about um, both rainmaking and your, 
your kind of journey is something you said it was that you had no idea two years ago that the job that you're doing now even existed or would exist and that's what I, I, I that's kind of like why the podcast exists it because it's to try and uh, provide that kind of broad spectrum of different stories um and different options because i think there are it, certainly in my experience it's quite difficult to to find identify or access like these these interesting jobs or ventures etc um and and most people end up um well we're, we're all victims of circumstance aren't we to, to differing um degrees so it's pretty cool to hear that you know you're you're however many years into your career and only two years ago you had no idea that the job that you're doing now even existed um so that's like that that's great and um and hopefully that might um help people and people might find it interesting that i guess one one thing that comes to mind is is how is rainmaking tying those things together like is it data driven uh, how would you how has the clarity like manifested itself in in your in the recent sort of months or or years I love that you're asking this question because I feel like a lot of people ask me this nowadays. Um, I've had a bunch of people contact me and be like, how did you get to where you are with your background? <laughs> because it does seem um, that sort of looking at my background, I'm a little bit of an anomaly in a, in a world that's normally quite homogeneous on what kind of people get in. Um, it's, it's, I think it's fair to say that to see an anthropologist where I'm now is not exactly common um, or to see an anthropologist um, sort of in, in this kind of business, it's, it's becoming, but it's not very common. Mm. And, and on that front, it's not like my job description says, do the anthropological things. <laughs> it's, it's more of a, um, in the approach that I have towards my work and Truth be told, when I first started this job, um, after um, the team and especially Matt, I, uh, HR lead, was absolutely convinced that I'm the right person for the job based on the interviews and some cases that I did, um, I was still not convinced that I'm the right person for the job. It <laughs> took me the good, you know, six, uh, seven, eight months to be at a point where I'm like, now I understand why they hired me. <laughs> um, now I understand that what you need in this job is that sort of um, the financial ma uh, mathematical rigor, but you don't need to sort of know everything yet. Uh, it, it's enough that I have certain potential um, in order to grow into some aspects of my job, especially on that side that I haven't studied. You know, it would be a different thing if I came from a heavy financial econ uh, economy background. But I don't. So that means that there's some room to grow for me. Um, and that's great. Um, but what I just need to have is sort of that, you know, good head calculus <laughs> kind of background that I can then just draw upon for those things when we're doing financial modeling or market sizing or figuring out uh, percentages and all, all that stuff. Um, so luckily, I wanted to be a math teacher at some point. Now it's really <laughs> paying off. Um, and then from the anthropological side, um, it's in some ways reductionistic to say that I do market research for a job. So yeah, research, research, then, you know, I get to use the anthropological methods. Yes, but kind of no. 
because obviously a lot of my job is still desktop research. But um, recently when I was describing this to some other anthropologists, it sort of came to me, what is the best way to describe it? And it's precisely that because of the nature of my job and the way we work, which is the six week cycles um, of partnering with a corporate and six weeks later, we will have a startup idea to pitch them. Um, that's fully fleshed out with all the data backing um, and sort of all that goodness that we figured out, the, the sort of semi-fleshed out business model canvas. And that works for me because, you know, in only this year, I've gone from studying everything related to metals and jewelry to logistics and parcels to how chemical manufacturing supply chains work to... Um, airlines and most recently um, pet supplies pet care pet insurances <laughs> and it's like studying a different microcosm and almost a culture every time and that is brilliant for an anthropologist brain yeah. because it means that in these you know short rapid cycles i get to dive deep into something that is completely unknown and foreign to me and sort of bumble around and see what is this? What does this mean? Oh, you can 3D print jewelry. That's fascinating. And sort of go down on those rabbit holes to get that 360 view on what is this about? And then where sort of the deep anthropology comes in is like, so what is this about and where's the people in it? So if I take say the, the, the sort of jewelry and metal investments and all that that I worked with this year, that was fascinating to realize, you know, where are the people? Who does what from, you know, where the metal comes from, from the mines to the refineries, to they're in billions and they're stored in banks, to um, all the way to someone actually handcrafting them as a jeweler in their little studios in London. And so trying to understand that whole picture. Um, and what is the different perspective that each person from different parts of say that supply chain has on what is it that we're talking about? So you touched on some of the ideas there and, and also kind of elaborated on the, the process, which again, sounds, sounds like really interesting. So there's, there's kind of two questions. One is, one is like, who do these ideas belong to? And like, what's the, what's the source of them? And, and then kind of linked to that is the people question around the structure of the, of the organizations, because you're, you're creating a business. That six week program is essentially doing all of the research and it sounds like, and then pitching um, or, or creating a business, mm -hmm. which then has a degree of longevity. So like where do the ideas come from and, and how does the structure with the people work? So where the ideas come from is such a wonderful question because uh, like, I'm just going to fully like put the cat on the table <laughs> because so many people talk about sort of venture studios with sort of the rocket internet kind of model. And if you are familiar with that, but basically that, you know, you just take um, successes from, um, say other markets, China, so forth. And then you just like adapt them and bring them to market um, in Europe. And truth be told, that is what a lot of venture builders do as well, because 
if it's a good idea and if you can adapt it, then why not? Um, so obviously there's a lot of startup benchmarking that goes on in our line of work because we want to bring these corporates validated business models. We know that these startups will work, um, which means that someone somewhere out there has done something like this before and we know that the mechanics work. We know that the customer segment is interested. We know that the value proposition is solid. And, and that's sort of you know, one part of it. But I think the other part is also like you know, picking on what we mean by idea. So if we, this is sort of to talk about the, the startup idea that we pitch towards the corporate. And the other part is sort of like those different ideas that come together. And something that I've really enjoyed is actually how our studio principal, Eric, has described this to me, that we're not actually building um, a startup idea. We're building a hypothesis <laughs> of a startup. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because it's that sort of mindset change from, no, we're not actually, you know, creating something necessarily you know, new and disrupting. Like we like to think of, you know, innovation and ideas as if they are something that suddenly emerges in the world that no one has ever seen before. But actually we're looking at the market almost bit like a scientific method to understand what is the market size? What are the trends? Who's playing um, in the market? What kind of uh, companies they are? What kind of business models? What are their value propositions? Who's buying? Why are they buying? What is the actual need um, in order to come up with a hypothesis on this kind of a business would work in this kind of a market? And I think that's where sort of, um, if I understand correctly, your, your question on sort of the people and where does that come in? Um, I think it comes in everywhere. <laughs> There's such an anthropologist answer um, because in order to understand what drives a business, you need to understand the underlying need of the market and how that need is changing. And all of those are behavioral things. So say uh, when I've been researching uh, the pet care industry, it's, it's fascinating to figure out how many more people are actually um, buying pets in COVID. Um, because that is now a thing. People want care. People, people want closeness. They, they want to care for something that's close to them and they want to spend on that. Um, and th that, that is a very sort of behavioral thing, uh, a change that, you know, anthropologically, I also find absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, but then on sort of the business side, that is a market trend. That is what you would call it, right? You'd be like, okay, so people are spending more on pets in COVID. Great. Now we know <laughs> where the market is going. Um, or, or if you look at um, sort of the, the business models and the competitors, um, they, they are, those are trends too, that when, when we look at them to be like, okay, this kind of say subscription business model seem to be doing great. Um, and people seem to really like to subscribe to this kind of services in this kind of an industry. Um, but again, it comes down to people because people like in certain services to have the convenience of the subscription, but not in all services and not in all industries. So it's sort of like 
you know, for, that's what I mean when I say that for me, the anthropology really comes in to see the people um, behind those things that we would normally call, say, market trend or market size or business model. <laughs> um, and what does that mean if you, you know, would describe it people first um, and not as business first? So I, d- I don't want to go down the COVID rabbit hole, um, <laughs> but, um, but you, ca- you can't help but think that, I mean, well, it's obvious that, that, that there's the kind of seismic shifts that, that are going on in terms of human behavior and then the knock-on effect of that in so, ma- in so many different industries. And yeah, the, the, pet, the pet thing kind of makes sense and, um, and is clear. And, and, and people are at home more aren't they? That's, that's the other thing. So that they, they're more able to, to look after a pet. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm actually, we're actually picking up a a puppy on at the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's topical. You're, you're part of the demographic that I'm researching. (laughs) Yeah. I just, um, yeah, I just wanted to join in. No. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of, it's interesting that it's it's come about like um it's through through like a family friend whose dog has got like, had like a surprise pregnancy so it's not um um I don't know if that's it doesn't really change it does it it's still it's still happening but um <laughs> um but yeah circumstances dictate but I guess the the other thing because say say you have you have some people who have a business idea that um that rainmaking stumbles across let's say for, for, through whatever medium whether it's through your own research or or maybe people approaching you I, I, I don't know but in terms of in terms of the structure because like you said rainmaking have skin in the game so they they will have um an equity they will have some equity within the 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 company that that is that is created and then presumably the the corporate do too is that correct so far Yes, absolutely. That and is then, correct. and then the say that say the individuals who are going to run this company, they they are then hired, but also get equity in the company. So they get a salary and they get equity. Is that is that or, or does yes. it vary? Yes, that that is correct. Um, because obviously we want to incentivize correctly, and that's sort of what we mean by saying skin into game so we as sort of the venture studio we have equity because then we have our best intentions at heart to let go of the venture when we need to and exit to the corporate um and sort of not keep on bumping fees if it seems like the venture is not going to work because then that would actually go out of our bag as well um so then we're just going to kill it early um which is part like a huge part of our model that if, if we don't think it works if we don't think it's investable we say no and equally so for the founders, we want them to come on board and be committed to the actual business and, and what they're trying to grow. So it's not just, you know, taking care of someone else's child, but it's their child too. <laughs> they get to co-parent with us, um, which means that they are equally as committed to the positive outcome of each venture. So why, why would a, this is uh, like really fascinating, um, by the way, uh, so um it's so interesting but why why would those two individuals um let's say i've decided there are two of them i don't know why but um what's the i guess the benefit of them going down that route is that 
is that you guys have a team and a and therefore a set a kind of expertise and then the corporate has the the the, the horsepower i guess to to make that organization bigger than it would be if they just sourced financing themselves for example um is that is that generally the i'm trying to work out why people would do that as opposed to going down uh, an alternative route where they might retain more equity and just raise finance well, basically, I would say it comes down to a few things. One of them is that what is exceptional um, in doing a corporate venture is that you get to play with the big corporates, um, which means that the startups we build are based on a deep partnership with one of the Fortune 500s from the get-go. Um, we get to tap into what we call the unfair advantages. So that might be the, the data assets, um, warehousing they might have massive fleets they might have manufacturing power um whatever that is that will be sort of a shared asset in some ways towards the startup venture from the get-go which enables it to grow faster um, and reach more success in the market this is sort of the hypothesis we're playing with and that's a unique kind of proposition for a founder to engage in instead of you know building their own startup from the ground the other thing is with this kind of model that we're working with um the startups that the founders join will basically have a guaranteed investment trajectory they don't get they don't need to um engage with the hard game of trying to raise money for their venture they get to focus on being a founder and making the right business decisions um, for the venture as the founder. And that, that's it. That's, that's the job. Because with this setup, we already know that the corporate is invested. And better yet, the corporate wants us to exit uh, because the corporate wants to own the whole startup venture at the end of you know, three, four, five years so that they can grow it themselves. So that's a guaranteed exit for a founder who's joining in in three to five years with guaranteed um, equity and basically they get to do what they like to do yeah it's, it sounds it's, it's fantastic it's so it's so interesting and these conversations like this are are really the reason i um started the podcast because you i don't know where else you go to hear i mean that nowadays where where do you go to hear this kind of story or the these kind of organizations and why they exist and how they function nowadays it is through podcasts um, <laughs> Absolutely. Like that. and that's that was kind of the case back when i started listening to them a long a long time ago and i've listened to hundreds if not if not thousands so um but yeah i i just think it's i just think it's great so if people if people wanted to keep up with you and or rainmaking, like what's the best way for them to do that? Um, for me personally, um, just check me out on LinkedIn. And I'm also starting my own podcast, almost on the same kind of mission as you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this time specialized in human scientists in business and industry. Um, because of my experiences and my journey so far, trying to understand the wacky world of business, um, and venture studios and all that comes with it. Um, I figured it's sort of time to start raising the profile for all of us who are anthropologists, sociologists, behavioral economists, um, or whatever not in the business world. 
and, and start talking about the methods we use, how we got here, where we are, and sort of bring inspiration to um, people in business who would like to do more human-based business um, or uh, students who are still trying to figure out where to go when they actually graduate. Um, and this podcast will be called uh, It's Only Human, <laughs> very fittingly so. Um, and you can also find it through my LinkedIn or uh, you will have it on LinkedIn page as well. And what comes to Rainmaking Ventures to you, you can follow us on Medium and Substack. Um, look for Adventures in Ventureland, um, a neatly titled new blog that we've just launched. Um, and we should have some content pushed out a few times a month, specialized in venture building and the kind of research we do on different industries and the insights we find. Great. Well, I will, def I will definitely be listening to your, uh, to your podcast. Looking forward to it. Um, but th thank you so much for taking the time, Mariana. I really, I really appreciate it, and um, and yeah, hope to keep in touch. And thank you so much.